Uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to just help us in our study together. Father, I just I thank you for the reminder. Um, it was, as we've just lit a candle to focus our mind on an aspect of the advent of Christ that you first announced things to these lowly shepherds. God, no one in this room is worthy. No one is smart enough. Uh, None of us figured this out. By your grace, you have revealed the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and you've revealed it to us. And so we say thank you. We praise you that you have, by your grace and your mercy, reached down and intervened into our lives. Though we are rebellious and sinful people, and you have brought us back to you by giving us your Son, This is all your initiative, all of your work. And so we say thank you. Uh, Lord, as we study now uh, your word, give us good minds uh, to think clearly. Give us open ears and receptive hearts. Give us courage to change where we need to change. Give us a love for you, for the body of Christ, uh, and an acceptance of your word as it proceeds by the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles to Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12. We're finishing the book today. So that's always, there's always a sense of satisfaction when we finish, isn't there? Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. I like that. What are some of your family rules? Uh, I know you have them. Maybe just let your mind kind of run around with those a little bit. Um, I remember one summer... Uh, growing up, my mother decided that my sister and I, we, I, I grew up in the high desert of Southern California, and she decided that my sister and I couldn't go out and play for the day in the summertime until we had first picked a five-gallon pail of weeds. And that was our get-out-of-jail-free card right there. And I remember one day I got smart, uh, or not so smart, as, as you might think of it, and I thought, you know, tumbleweeds are big. <laughs> so I picked a couple tumbleweeds and stuffed them in. I'm done. And it didn't work. Uh, I'm still, still in jail. Uh, we have rules at our house, uh, like probably many of you, no shoes on the carpet, right? We have another one that my wife came up with, which is a good one, and that's no electronics at the table. Uh, I like that. Uh, at the end of the day, we sit down together and we celebrate the end of the day by sharing a meal. And we are attentive to one another, and we don't want our minds to be distracted with other things. And so we focus on each other, and we talk, and we listen to our kids, and uh, we usually uh, exchange a few questions. The common ones are usually, what was the highlight and what was the low light of your day? And we listen to each person share. Uh, Another one that uh, comes up from time to time is, if we were at Disneyland right now, which ride would we be on? And somehow it just gives you a sense of somebody's mood. And so those are some things we do at the dinner table. Uh, we have another one that's, um, this, was, this was a good one. Amy came up with this one. Most of our good rules Amy's come up with. Um, no breakfast until you're ready for school. Uh, for those of you who have slow moving, slow obedience kinds of mornings with your kids. Uh, boy, they move a lot faster when they're not going to get breakfast that morning unless they're ready. That was a good change. We also have kids do dishes on Friday nights. That's a good one, and that's going to expand as they get older. Uh, Sunday lunch is fend for yourself. After church, we go home, 
hey, do the best you can. <laughs> you know, there's food in the house. Scrounge because we're napping, and that's that's kind of what we do. It's not pretty, but that's how we roll on Sundays. And uh, we have another one that we do. It, probably a lot of you do this as well. We have a certain phone protocol for our kids. So when they answer the phone, they're supposed to say, John's residence, Eric speaking, or, you know, whatever. And a couple of weeks ago, Gus, our, our five-year-old, he's our youngest, and um, who's just gotten the opportunity to start doing this now, he kind of decided to turn the words around. And so he now has repeatedly been answering the phone with, John's family, resident, Gus speaking. <laughs> I love it. It sounds like he's an inmate in a correctional facility, <laughs> which he is because you know, that's really what family is, right? For kids, we're, yeah, he's stuck and he's being corrected routinely, but we're going to leave that one alone for a while. So if you call and Gus answers the phone, just you'll be treated to that. Uh, we're closing out the book of First Thessalonians, and, and Paul is basically giving some instructions to the church on how it is to conduct itself as the family of God. And so what we get here really are sort of some family rules, some family rules. What does it mean to be family of God? How do we interact with each other? What what sort of expectations ought we to have from one another? And he kind of lays these out. And Paul basically gives a series of imperative commands really quick and almost in staccato fashion, just command, command, command at the end of the book. And I think stylistically, it's almost his way of just kind of grabbing our attention and bringing us back to the matters at hand, especially this church in Thessalonica who had gotten distracted and upset and uneasy about a lot of kind of scary things that they were hearing. And I think he just arrests their attention and helps them focus on what it is they are to be doing. Remember the the church in Thessalonica, for all the good that was going on, they had gotten a little bit frenetic and afraid about the day of the Lord. We talked about this last week. There was some fear about the return of Christ. And it seems to me that Paul is kind of, again, just grabbing their, their attention and letting them know that they have responsibilities to one another as the family of God. And they have responsibilities to God. And so he seems to talk about sort of these, these family rules. And overall, I think his advice throughout the book and in, in, in conclusion here is sort of calming advice. He's just seemingly trying to settle them down and letting them know how to wait well for the Lord's return. And overall, the theme is, as you see, is to be steadfast, to be steadfast, to be a good family fellowship that reflects the goodness and the character of Christ. Uh, I think this message is important for us to hear today as well. Um, I think a lot of people can come to a church with a very consumeristic mentality what does the church have to offer me you know what will it do uh, for me what will it do for this part of my family you know what's going on does it do this or does it do that does it meet my needs and it becomes a very self-centered approach to coming to a church but paul reminds us here that to be a part of the church is to be a part of a family the family of god and it means that we have responsibilities to one another and we have responsibilities to God. And as it seems he lays these out, it seems like the responsibilities are laid out almost in three directions. Number one, we have responsibilities to church leaders. This is just the order in which he puts them. Secondly, we have responsibilities to each other. And thirdly, we have responsibilities to God. So let's look at these together. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, again, family language, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love and 
because of their work, live in peace with each other. So first and foremost, I would draw out this point. Respect your leaders. Respect your leaders. This is what he tells the church in Thessalonica. And more than likely, Paul is referencing um, elders or maybe prototype elders in the church. Um, I think it's natural to question who's he talking to. And, and this is the group that I would see him uh, referencing here, uh, elders or prototype elders in the church. He doesn't name them specifically. He doesn't identify uh, the group explicitly. But um, by the description of their functions, by the description of what they do, it sounds like he's talking about elders here. Um, most of your translations have the phrase, um, those who are over you in the Lord, right? And so we see there, there is, a, there is a sense of responsibility, a charge to care for those who have certain leadership and authority, authority functions. And secondly, he says, those who admonish you. Uh, and again, that, that original word there uh, is nuthateo, and it means to warn or exhort. It's the word that Paul uses when talking about correcting doctrinal or moral error. And so it's correction in nature. These are functions that elders performed as we see that office developed throughout the New Testament. And um, so another question comes up. Well, if he's talking about elders, then, you know, um, why wouldn't he call them elders? Uh, I think if you remember, this church is a young church. It's probably a year old. It emerged out of the synagogue. Remember, as Paul and Silas were there, we saw this in Acts 17. And as they ministered in the synagogue and shared the gospel, proving that Jesus was the Christ, uh, that these these new converts sort of came out of that and formed a fellowship. So this is a young church who probably has not had much time to develop their leadership structure and, and specific offices. But we do find natural leaders and elder types in the church uh, as we look at the whole New Testament. Jason is one of them. Remember, Jason was the host of Paul and Silas when they were in Thessalonica. And when, when there was... Um, I guess some jealousy over the popularity of this new church coming out of the synagogue. And they went looking for Paul and Silas and they didn't find him. Remember, they found their host, Jason, and they drug him out of his home. And they took him before the city officials and they gave him a hard time and made him post bail. But Jason seems to be one of these leadership kind of guys. There's two others, Aristarchus and Segundus, that are not mentioned here, but are mentioned specifically in Acts 20 and Acts 27. These are guys that were mentioned to have... Uh, come from Macedonia, specifically Thessalonica, and that they traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. So he has a relationship with leadership kinds of guys in the area, eldership kinds of guys that later even accompanied him on missionary journeys. I think these are the kinds of guys that Paul is talking to in this particular fellowship. Um, And he basically tells them, hey, respect your leaders. Respect them. So I want to bring this to bear uh, on our church, at Bethel Church. Uh, what does this say to us? Well, I think it's the same thing. Respect our leaders. And I want to ask the question, well, who are they? Who are our leaders? Who are our elders in this church? And here they are. I brought a picture uh, for you this morning. And they didn't know I was going to do this, or clearly they would have submitted a better picture of themselves. Some of them look a little rough there, especially the guy in the bottom left corner. Um, but these are your elders. Uh, according to our church bylaws and our organization, we have... Ten elders in the church. Uh, Four of them are vocational or pastors. Uh, Myself, Pastor Mark next to me in the blue shirt. He's our youth pastor, as you know. Pastor Adam in the uh, sort of top right-hand corner in the striped shirt. is our uh, pastor of everything else that we don't want to do. And and then, of course, Pastor Keith, our worship pastor, or otherwise called pastor of hard things. Um, 
And so those are your pastors. But these other guys here, these six other men here, are volunteer elders who sign up for a three-year term. Uh, They are elected by the members of this church. And um, they have to meet an 80% vote of qualification from you all, uh, from the members. Uh, This results in the fact that two people will rotate off the board um, every year. And so this board is constantly changing and morphing. But these are your elders as of um, right now, uh, this moment. And and you guys need to know that. We don't have a single elder rule church here. We see in the New Testament the pattern that is taught is a plurality of elders. A group of godly men who work together to seek the Lord and lead and shepherd the church. And um, you should be proud of these men. These are good men that love the Lord and that serve you and that shepherd uh, this fellowship. Um, They're good guys. Uh, And... A couple years ago, somebody asked the question. It was a very good question. I don't remember who it was or what the context was. But they asked the question, well, what is it that elders do? They seem to be a fairly silent group at the church. We don't see them much or hear from them much. So what in the world do elders do? And uh, Russ Holder, who was on the board at that time, had a really good answer to that. Many of you remember Russ Holder. And he said, you know, sometimes it's the work of elders to keep things calm and quiet and peaceful. And that's part of what they do. And I thought, you know, that was a, that was a really good answer. Um, elders are not in it for the attention, uh, for the spotlight. They're in it to serve. And they serve faithfully this church. And I want to talk to you about some of the things that they do. They seek the Lord through prayer. When we gather together, we meet twice a week. We just met this last Thursday. We pray. We pray for you. We pray for the church. We pray for our time together that God would lead us and guide us as we discuss. Uh, we we work together to find the vision and the direction of the church and, and sort of hammer things out there and then bring those things to the voting membership of the body. We protect the doctrine of the church. We make sure that what is taught on Sunday morning, Sunday school rooms, Bible studies, wherever else, is consistent with the scriptures. Uh, that's important. That's important. Uh, we protect the doctrine of the church by being active teachers and by being ready to refute anything that would be false that might emerge. Um, Elders have the responsibility to confront sin and error. They have a responsibility to graciously encourage people who are going through difficulty, and that happens regularly. Um, And they promote the peace peace in the church by faithfully shepherding day in and day out in lots and lots and lots of little situations that you never see. Um, Hebrews 13, 17 is a good corollary passage to this, and it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. And that's the scary part of the job right there. It's the accountability to the Lord for it. And it goes on to say, Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So I've talked to you a little bit about what they do and and who they are. But if I could just sort of clarify your perspective of the elders and the leaders of this church in just one more way. I would just sort of want to give you a picture of what it's like to be in a meeting with them. And I want to tell you that I don't particularly like meetings in general, but I love meeting with these guys. Uh, We have hard discussions. We have good discussions. We challenge each other. We learn from each other. But this group, this gathering of men, is really like a group, a gathering of spiritual fathers who shepherd this church in the same kinds of ways that they would Um, be a father in their own home. 
And I just want you to know this. And I, please hear me very clearly. These are good guys. They love you. They work hard for you. This last week, this last meeting, we spent about three hours together from 7 to a little after 10 o'clock. We laughed hard. We prayed. We wrestled with some things. We searched the scriptures together. It was good. You should be proud of these men. You should be proud of them. And I think in a world of corrupt and self-serving so-called leaders, these servant-hearted guys uh, do an honorable thing. They do an honorable thing. And so Paul says, in light of this difficult and beautiful work that they do, uh, you should acknowledge the hard work of shepherding. And secondly, he says, love them because of their work. And I think that's an important nuance to identify there. Um, It doesn't say that we should love them because of their position or because of their stature or because of their influence or because of their authority. They have those things, but he says to love them because of their work, because of their servant-hearted way of putting that in place for the benefit of the body of Christ. Um, And so I, I think that's an important distinction that he makes here. And then lastly, he basically tells us to live in peace with one another. How do we respect our leaders? Acknowledge the work that they do. Love them because of their work and live at peace with each other. As parents, this really, uh, I think, should ring true for us. Every now and then, you know, Amy and I will be sitting in the living room. And um, we have three kids, ages 11 through 5. Every now and then, the kids will find something to do together harmoniously. It's almost miraculous. You know, three kids, someone almost is always left out, the age span, you know, the whole picture. But every now and then we're sitting there and somehow they're peacefully getting along, liking each other. Everybody's got a role, they're contributing, and it's fun and it's good. And we'll sort of catch each other's eyes, you know, like, hey, look what's happening. Don't move. (laughs) Don't smash the crystal ball. Everything's good. And, uh. As you know, as parents, one of the great joys of our lives is to watch our kids interact together harmoniously at whatever age, at whatever age. And when we see them maturing and growing in a way where they're caring for each other, it gives us, gives us peace and calm and it gives us an opportunity to rejoice. And Paul's saying this is one of the ways that you can respect your leaders. Get along with each other. Live in peace. Let them enjoy the pleasure of a peaceful fellowship. <clears throat> So Paul clearly shows that the church has a responsibility to respect its leaders as they carry out their responsibilities before God. Uh, But we also see that church members have responsibilities to one another. To one another. Look at verse 14. And we encourage you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So I would say if the first sphere of our responsibility is to respect leaders, the second then is to build each other up. Our responsibility is to one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Last last week I highlighted a word, Greek word oikodomio, Uh, That was used, that Paul used, and I told you that it was a construction word. It's translated, build one another up. Oikodomio, a construction word. And I gave you a lot of um, synonyms to kind of help you picture what this is like. 
stabilize, support, brace, strengthen, protect, undergird, steady. This is the responsibility given to the body of Christ for each other. In other words, yes, leaders have a responsibility in shepherding, but the body of Christ has a responsibility to one another to do these things, to build each other up, to construct, in a sense, one another, to support each other. And I wanted to illustrate this um, with this picture here. This is my woodshed. Have I shown you this before? Maybe once or twice? I am not a builder, okay? I have attempted a few projects, but I've never really built anything except this. And so this is my woodshed, and it's still standing years later, so I'm proud of it, okay? And so you'll have to permit me a little license here to enjoy it year after year after year in front of you. Uh, (laughs) um, But like I said, I didn't know how to build this. I just found a picture of one that I kind of liked, and I thought, boy, that'd be a great way to tuck away some wood and actually look nice and and so I, I took my ideas and my plans to some guys that know a lot more about construction than I do. And I said, can you help me build this in a way that it's strong and going to survive? And so they helped me with that. And, and as you look at it, you can see lots of little things going on here. Um, you can see the two by six bracing, you know, and where it is. And, and four by four posts that are pressure treated. And actually this center one here is a four by six to kind of help strengthen this span of this beam. The headers are two by sixes nailed together at, in, at regular intervals to create a stronger beam than just one dimensional piece of lumber. And then these corners, oops, over here, these corners are braced again. And even threw in some slats here to keep the wood from spilling over one side. I mean, it's nothing special about it. It's a woodshed, right? But that's about as good as it gets for me. But as I was thinking about this picture of oikodomio and building one another up and bracing and supporting and strengthening and stabilizing one another. This is what came to mind. Those of you guys that build regularly and do these things regularly, you understand the intent and the focus is to make something that's rigid and strong and has a certain integrity to it. And that's God's desire for the church, for the family of God. And he's given you a responsibility to participate in that with one another. Yes, leaders... Elders have a responsibility to shepherd the church, but you have a responsibility to build into it yourself, yourself, which is our second point here. Church members are responsible to each other. Uh, And so you can see that church is much more than just attending or singing or listening, but it is a life on life interacting so that a person can actually have the opportunity to do these things. Look at the verbs that are used. Warn, encourage, help, ensure, strive, be patient, do good, pray, give thanks. This requires a level of connectivity within the body of Christ so that you can have opportunity to do these things. Um, Church is not something that we attend. It's something that we are. It's like saying, I attended family this week. No, you are family. Church is something we are. It's an identity of relationship with God and with his people. It's something that we are. Um, And the, the result is that we will need to take turns giving and receiving support. Um, There may be times when you don't feel like being part of the church. 
You might feel like just being part of your bed at home and not arriving or not going to small group or having no interest in being in fellowship with other people because your life, everything is fine. And I want to caution those of you who may feel that way. Um, The day of trouble is coming. And I don't mean that in some eschatological way or end times apocalyptic way. I mean that in each and every one of our lives, a day is coming that is overwhelming. That's more than we ourselves can bear. It's too heavy. It's too much. And we will need support and we will need the body of Christ to shoulder up with us. And in that day, it will reveal something. It will reveal the level of connectivity and fellowship and relationship that you yourself have cultivated in the body of Christ or have failed to do. But the day of trouble is coming. Um, Galatians 6 talks about this a little bit, but there's two almost seemingly contradiction, contradictory instructions that Paul gives there in Galatians 6, 1 through 5. He says, each one of you, he says, you should bear each other's burdens. And then he also says, each one of you should carry your own load. And you kind of throw up your hands like, well, well which is it? <laughs> it's like I'm reading a Dickens novel here or something. Was it the best of times or was it the worst of times? Which one? You know. And he, the meaning of the, the real essence of what he's getting at there is, is, in, is in the words. And when he says that each one of you is to bear each other's burdens, that word is the same word for freight. It's, it's like... It's a donkey load of burden. It's more than a person themselves can carry. It requires help. And then the last word that he uses there where he says, each of you should carry your own burden. It's the same word that would be used of a soldier's backpack. That's a personal load. In other words, each of us takes responsibility for our life. We're to carry our own burden. But the day of trouble is coming, a day when the burden is too much for one person to bear, and then we need to... Trust in the body of Christ, the family of God, to shoulder up under us. And you will need to cultivate those kinds of relationships that you might share in that blessing. Um, I think there's a book that needs to be written, and I don't think I'm going to write it, but um, I'll suggest the title, The Cost of Community. I think that book needs to be written for our culture. Because more and more increasingly what I see is our culture becoming absolutely consumed with self So that I can stylize, personalize everything to I. I this, I that, right? Pretty soon we're going to have I church. And Paul is saying just the opposite of this. Community is based on reciprocal relationships with give and take. And if you are unwilling to pay the cost of community, you will not be able to receive the benefit of community. Community has a cost means that we need to submit to one another. It means that we need to set aside our rights and privileges and desires and deference to others at times. There is a cost to community, and more and more I think our culture is less willing to pay it. But it's worth it. Paul tells us that. Um, I love this quote by John Stott. He said, Jesus came to create a new people who would model what it means to live under his rule. It would be a glorious Outpost of the kingdom of God and embassy of heaven. Is that a good picture? That's what people should find when they brush up against the church. These people have been changed by almighty God such that they live differently in one another's lives. And it seems to be a taste of heaven. That's what people should find when they brush up against the church. 
So we have responsibilities to our leaders. We have responsibilities to each other to build one another up. And thirdly, we have responsibility to God. And I'm going to phrase this section this way. We need to be open to the spirit of God. But be cautious about false prophets. Uh, Look with me in verse 19 here. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, I want to tell you on the outset, this is a big discussion, and there's passages you know, that run the gamut of scriptures on this particular topic, and I'm not going to hit them all this morning, obviously. I'm just going to touch on this a little bit as it pertains to the church in Thessalonica and us. Um, but it seems to me that the primary point that the Apostle Paul is making here is the idea of testing prophecy. Testing it. That's the primary point. Test prophecy. He doesn't want this church, this young church that he loves, where he's unable to be there and to protect it. He doesn't want it to become vulnerable to every self-proclaimed prophet out there. At the same time, he tempers his caution because he doesn't want them to throw the baby out with the bathwater either. And so he tempers his caution with some qualifications. Don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. And so he's calling the church to live in tension and us to live in tension. We're not to resist the work of the Spirit of God, but neither are we to open ourselves up to every whim of teaching. And so there's care and caution that is to take place. The reason I hold that hold to the fact that this is what he's teaching about is really all about context. I want you to think about this church in Thessalonica. We've talked about him for a long time. You know the background, you know what's going on here. One of the primary themes in the letter that Paul is writing to them is about the return of the Lord or the day of the Lord. That's been an emphasis. In fact, every chapter closes with reference to it. Remember that? And in each time Paul refers to the return of the Lord and the coming of the Lord, he does so in a way as to encourage them. To encourage them. And basically what we see is that this church has some unrest that's going on, especially in Paul and Silas's absence. They seem to be uneasy about when this will occur and what the impact will be to them and to those around them. And that's what Paul is continuing to address throughout the book. Uh, We've seen this in a couple of ways. There's some rampant speculation as to dates and times. Remember this? And Paul told them last week about dates and times. We don't need to tell you. Don't worry about what day it's on. We've also seen that he had to develop sort of a theology of work throughout the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because some people were saying, well, hey, the Lord's coming back. Why go to work? So he tried to steady them with that. And we also see that some people had asked questions about their loved ones, remember? And Paul encouraged them. Those that, have, that are asleep in the Lord, they will be raised on that day, on the day of the Lord. So that was one of the other questions. Um, and we also see in 2 Thessalonians 2, as we get into that book next, uh, that there was a group of false prophets who had come along and were kind of whipping people up. They were, in fact, teaching that the day of the Lord had already occurred and that they had missed it. And so Paul, with his heart for this church, is kind of writing them back. And it it seems to me that that all in all, they're in a frenzy over these apocalyptic speculations. And what Paul is trying to do is to calm them down and settle them down. He's trying to get them to not blindly accept every self-proclaimed prophet or message of a self-proclaimed prophet, but rather to test them. To test them. Uh, And I think... Let me just put this up here real quick. So Paul's trying to calm the church down in terms of its fear and frenzy. 
And then secondly, he does something here. He equips the church so that they won't be vulnerable to false prophets. I want you to do something for me. In your handout, you have a quote at the bottom by by Wayne Grudem. And I want to ask you to scratch that out because I have misquoted him. Uh, It wasn't intentional, but I kind of wrote a note to myself as I was preparing this week, and I, I transferred over that note that wasn't finished. But I'll read to you the quote that he says. This is to define prophecy as I'm talking about it. We're not talking about prophecy that we would find in the Old Testament. We're talking about New Testament prophecy or prophecy within the in the church but he says this be sure you emphasize scripture as the place where god can always go uh, to hear the voice of the living god oh excuse me see i'm not now i'm not even reading in the right place remember that what is spoken in any prophecy today is not the word of god but is simply a human being reporting in merely human words something which God has brought to mind. That's what he's saying there. And so to define prophecy as we're talking about it here, it is a gift that I'm going to tell you, I believe is alive and well. It may be used today. Um, And it is, I believe, an opportunity where God would bring something to mind in an individual to speak a truth to the church that may be overlooked for some reason. It is not on par with Scripture, and it will never disagree with Scripture. And so... Paul tells us to test it, and here's sort of the test that he lays out for us. I don't have this up here, but you have it in in your notes. First of all, he tells us to test the content. Test the content. Whatever somebody would bring forward uh, as a prophecy that God may have brought to mind to them will always agree with Scripture. It will never disagree with Scripture. Uh, Secondly, we're to test the character of the individual, and this is what Jesus tells us. In Matthew 7, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, Jesus tells us to look at a person's life. Someone who's claiming to be a prophet, to have a message uh, to deliver from the Lord. Look at their life. And see if they are, in fact, a good fruit kind of person. We're also told to test the purpose of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul talks a little bit more about this. And probably that's the best passage to look at. But in that passage in 1 Corinthians 14, he identifies three primary purposes for prophecy. That number one, it would strengthen. Two, that it would encourage. And three, that it would comfort the church. That's the purpose for it. It's not new revelation. It's not something that God has not yet revealed, but to strengthen, encourage, and comfort the church. And fourthly, in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 14, um, we're told that to test the manner of it. In other words, prophecy would come about in an orderly fashion. If it's disorderly, then I think we have to question if it's from the Lord. I want to be very transparent with you and honest with you about this. Uh, Prophecy makes me uncomfortable. I'll just be truthful about that. Um, there's a lot of reasons why. Uh, probably the biggest is simply because uh, I've seen it abused so much. It's, it feels to me like a thousand times to one, uh, someone claiming to be a prophet is in fact not, and their message is in fact not, and it's more damaged than helpful. Uh, John Piper tells the story of a woman that came to him after a church service and said, I have a word from the Lord for you. 
At this time, his wife was expecting, and she said, your wife is going to give birth to a baby girl, and she's going to die in the process. And the baby is going to die. And he said, okay, thank you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, months later, when his baby boy was born healthy and well, and his wife survived just fine, he's sort of left with, what do you do with that? I don't know if you've ever run into one of those before. I have, and more times than I care to say. It's troubling. It's frustrating. You think, why would you do that? Why, why, why would you do that? And so I tend, in my nature, to be very skeptical. Just being honest with you. This passage tells me I have to be careful not to quench the Holy Spirit. Because he may bring something to mind to somebody to share for the benefit and the encouragement and the edification of the church. And I have to be willing to hear that, but ready to test it, right? That's what we're told. Uh, I want to illustrate this with something that happened this week. You may have heard about this. Uh, at Nelson Mandela's memorial service, an individual was hired to sign the messages that were being delivered at that particular time. Did you hear about this? Yes. And this individual who was hired um, stood three feet away from some of the world's most prominent leaders and gestured complete gibberish. It was not recognized sign language. It was just gestures. And he proceeded to do this throughout the service. Uh, (laughs) It's just amazing to me. In fact, it's even worse than this because this guy they've has... Uh, they've looked into his criminal record. He's, in fact, actually been accused of uh, murder and several other crimes. He claims to have been having a schizophrenic episode at the time and seeing angels flying about. Um, it's actually not even the first time the same thing has happened. At another event, I think about a year ago, he stood up and signed complete gibberish once again. And um, some well-meaning, well-intentioned person hired him without checking without testing without seeing and um, he shamed a lot of people in this particular incident and paul would have us be cautious about the same thing of someone who would proclaim to have a message to share uh, they ought to go through specific tests in order for it to be affirming and encouraging to the body of christ and in fact from the lord look at at paul's sort of concluding remarks here in verse 23 And just listen to the tone and the tenor of it as he's trying to calm everybody down. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All in all, it is an incredible privilege to be part of the body of Christ, is it not? To be family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. But it comes with responsibilities. We have responsibilities to our leaders to respect them. We have responsibilities to one another to build each other up. And we have responsibilities to God to be open to the Holy Spirit and to his work, but not exposing the church to false prophets. And so in light of the Lord's future coming, Paul wants us to be steadfast and to be a good expression of the local church of the family of God. That's the word of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, 
that you have given us clearly your word. No prophecy will contradict it. And everything is to be tested by it. Anyone who claims to speak for you or to have something to share is under the submission of your word. God, I pray that Bethel Church would continue to be a loving church. I thank you as one of their leaders for the incredible respect and honor um, and encouragement that they give me. I thank you for the excellent leaders that I get to serve with, uh, the godly elders of this church. Lord, thank you as I look out and watch this church love each other and care for one another, the service that I see one to another and the genuine love expressed in the community developed. And God, may we be steadfast as we follow you and as we wait for your return. May we be open to the work of the Spirit and cautious about anything and anyone who would disrupt the peace and the harmony of your fellowship. This is your family. We're your family. May we take seriously the responsibilities you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.